ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome to episode one of season two of George Ezra and Friends, the podcast. Episode one of season two. We've done it. We're here. Very exciting. In fact, for any anoraks out there, uh, this is our 13th guest, all in all. If you didn't listen to season one, why not? Why not go back and check them out? I think you'll enjoy them. Every episode is as interesting, but all for different reasons as the one that came before. Um, and this week's episode is no different. Uh, this week's guest is the lovely Niall Horan. Um, and myself and Niall <laughs> tried very hard to get together on the first season. There was a lot of emails. Uh, you know, I'm in town. Where are you? Ah. I'm free. Are you free? Da 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 da. Let's do it. Da da da. Um, and it never quite happened. Um, so I was very keen to make sure that it did on season two. And Niall was extremely accommodating. And just yeah, if you're listening, Niall, thank you very much. We finally found a date where we were both in the same place. And uh, Niall very kindly invited me over to his place, and we spent the afternoon chatting away. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, for those of you that have been living under a rock, Niall was, of course, a member in the band One Direction, who I found out the other day as a band sold over 70 million records, all in all. <laughs> Which is just, what? That's a lot of records. Um, and last year, Niall released his debut solo album, Flickr, uh, and that has sold over 2 million records in its own right. In fact, I read, as I read that as well, apparently it has been streamed over two billion times. <laughs> Can you imagine two billion of anything? One billion is a lot. Anyway, yeah, very daunting numbers. Uh, but it was an amazing afternoon and we spoke about how Niall's debut album came together and what it was like touring as a band, his influences growing up and how he got started. Um, but I don't want to ruin any of that you'll hear it any minute now and of course at the halftime break we will hear a word from our partners mind charity here in the uk you will hear a shout out for mind who are a charity that help all of us better understand and cope with our mental health um, if you are listening overseas that will not happen for you and you might just hear an advert i'm not 100 percent sure what you'll hear but there might be something there um, We'll find out. It's a nice surprise for us all. Uh, as always, ladies and gentlemen, there may be one or two swear words. I don't know for sure, but I'd just like to say it in case you've got little, little people with you um, who don't want to hear swear words. Um, but there you go. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Nal Horan. This week's episode of George Esmond Friends, where I'm joined with the one and only Nal Horan. Hello, Georgie Borgie. <laughs> How are you? I'm good, man. Thank you for doing this. Of course, yeah. I should let everyone know that's listening that me and Nal have been trying to get this in since the beginning of the first series. Yeah. And you've been amazing. Like, every time you've got a window, it's kind of like, I could potentially do now, I could potentially yeah. do now. I mean, you've been promoting and touring your debut solo album. Mm. I mean, since, which I checked, will be a year old this month. Exactly, yeah, yeah. you're right, yeah. And since that, you've been to Australia. I mean, it, this is just us talking, I mm. think, two or three times. Exactly. You know, to give everyone an idea mm. of how crazy it is. Um, and I would love to talk about that and your experience with releasing your solo record. Um, I think at some point, and I don't know where it's going to be best to do this, I would love to talk about your time in the band mm. and how that all came about because I think it it's so interesting and also it, it, it kind of it plays such a huge part in where you're at today you know, yeah, everything that we do adds up um, but how have you found touring as a solo act? It's been at the start it was very different like smaller crew um, you know a smaller venue uh, but then when you break it down I was lucky enough in the past to do the large shows with the lights and the fireworks and the stadium audiences and stuff. And this has just been nice to make it more about the gig 
rather than a show, if you know what I mean. And that's what it's felt like. And I've just really enjoyed it. Making, I made an album that, you know, I've written completely myself and worked hard on it, you know, like yourself, when we spend, you know, eight or nine months working on recording something like that and then releasing it and, and getting out on the road and doing the part, which is the best part about our job. Yeah, and that's the, the one of, if not the biggest difference it must be, is that what you're talking about, having eight or nine months to work away in a studio, it, that's completely different to what you're used to. Exactly. And even when I listen through the album, it's uh, you obviously had a lot of fun with this, this band in a room, and it, it's yeah. like... There's a lot of upright piano and live drum kits and acoustic guitars, and it exactly. sounds like a band in a room. Yeah. Um, before going into the studio, I mean, you signed with Capitol Records as well, mm. which is cool. I was like looking, because I, I knew, obviously, I know about Capitol Records, and I was like, the Beach Boys, yeah. Nat King Cole, Frank Sinatra. I was like, fuck, that's cool. No matter <laughs> no, 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 which way you cut it, that's cool. No, it was that, that was an amazing part. You know, I was, you know, at a couple of labels that, you know, were looking. Uh, when when they heard I was on the hunt for one, and Capital came about, I had a relationship with the head of Capital because he used to run Columbia on the Sony side, Steve Barnett, and he signed One Direction. Uh, so it, that was the relationship I had, and he went on to take over Capital. Um, but straight away they made it, they made it all about the music. And I remember the week I signed, I went into the office. They gave me a tour around the Capital, the famous. Capital Tower. Is there still a studio in the building? Oh yeah, there's three or four. Yeah, you can. Rec- I could pro- probably record at Studio Two where Sinatra, the, all the famous pictures of Sinatra in the studio and the Beatles and things like that. Um, but uh, they just you could you could just feel that in my head. What I said, I said to my manager, I was like, it felt like what the music industry was like 20 years ago, where it's not all marketing and blah, yeah, blah, blah, yeah. Blah. it felt very much more like you go and make a record. You know, we'll pay your way. Take as long as you want. Let us know when you're ready and you want to release music. And I was just like, brilliant. And obviously, we'll help you in our ways. But yeah, yeah. It was just it felt really organic. But that's such a blessing, like to have that, like however many years into your career already, to then have someone, because that's something that people are offered at the beginning. Yeah, you know? that's like the my experience with recording my first album was very much. I was just a kid having fun. Mm-hmm. There was no. Mm-hmm. We didn't know if anyone was going to hear the songs. We didn't know if anyone was yeah. going to hear the record. And at that point, eight months is, you know, that's okay yeah, to do. Yeah. And so did you have an idea of what you wanted the album to sound like? Yeah. <clears throat> Based on the music that I grew up on and what I've known about music since I was a child, I always kind of knew what if I was to make an album of my own, how it would sound but in the most organic way because that's the stuff I listen to and I still listen to so now. So what kind of stuff was that that you were listening to? I mean, all you have to do is look at the wall. There's a big picture of the Eagles on the wall. Um, that's such a good picture. <clears throat> at the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac and, you know, the Beatles and Jackson Brown. and. How did you come to find these? Was there someone in particular in your family that had, like, a CD collection, a record collection? Was there? Well, uh, yeah, I don't really come from a particularly musical family, but I come from a family that are lovers of, of music. And I guess in the early 70s, you know, when, when the Eagles were, were big and Hotel California was coming out, I just remember growing up in the house, we had a just an old record player, a um, little stack, and a turnta- one turntable on the top, and my mum was a bit, uh, like... OCD, so she actually found it at Christmas. She still got it, and she has little boxes in the house where she kept all of her vinyl and dated what date she bought them. No way! Yeah, in the top corner of of the sleeve. So all I do every day in the house, there was a vinyl player on with, you know, Hotel California, for instance, or a Bruce record or a Billy Joel record or something like that. And Lionel Richie, she's got like the single of uh, one of Lionel Richie singles and. That's the kind of that's my, they're my first memories of music, and I think that no matter how you try, your influences they come through. You can't try and hide them. When you start making music, it's kind of like, oh, I don't want to just rip this person off. I don't want to just do this, and then you're like, yeah. But, yeah, but that's what I like. That's like I'm trying to create exactly what I like. That was my head. That was in my head going into making this album. Like what you're saying, you know, you don't want to. But at the same time, as I got the further I got into writing the record, it was very clear. 
that my influences were going to make their make their mark yeah. here. And I remember thinking, let's just make this album about and kind of maybe teach people who don't necessarily listen to that kind of music, like the younger generation today. Let's give them a taste of what like a modernized version yeah. of what was big in the seventies. And I just kind of made the album on based on what my influences were. And um, I think it went well. And now I just kind of want to hone in on what the best parts of my first album were and make them better for the next part. So you are you kind of writing at the moment, recording? Yeah. Um, obviously, just finished tour. Some people, I don't know what you're like, but I struggle to write on the road. There's a lot of, like, sound check at this time, you know, dinner at that time, blah, blah, blah. Like, and getting into a bit of a routine. Obviously, you're in a city, you want to see the city as well. Um, it's like, I never really got into writing on the road, but now that I'm off it, I have been writing, like in my holidays during, and the off parts of the tour, I would write a few tunes here and there, but yeah, I wanted, I had a really good meeting with the label a couple of weeks ago in LA, and some really cool people that I want to work with, and, and um, some people that I've always worked with that's kind of, if it's not broke, don't fix it, but mm. I'm ready to go. And, and are you, like... Do you appreciate and enjoy that kind of collaborating with... Yeah. I always had it when I first signed my record deal. In my head, I was kind of like, as soon as I sign this, I'm agreeing to work with these people. Yeah. And if they've got opinions or advice, or whatever, yeah. I'm going to listen to them. Exactly. And do, do you feel as if you're, you're comfortable doing that? Yeah, 100%. Um, I, I do like writing on my own, but there's nothing better than when you think you've got a good idea and then given, getting someone else's opinion on it and then they bring it even... Yeah, more course. to life and that, that's my favourite part especially when you've got like a bit of a personal relationship like I know yourself and Joel yeah yeah like you worked a lot with Joel didn't you yeah so and it works well You're but that's it as well is I think there's a a trust thing that has to come into it mm. for me because it's we've all been there before where you go into a room with someone you've never met before <laughs> and you're going to try and write a tune in the day and you're kind of like and you're spilling your heart out in some cases. Yeah, yeah like, you are. And you are, mate. <laughs> yeah, I don't even tell my friends this. But yeah. I don't, that, yeah, that's it. And so, everything that has happened in your career, it seems when I look back over it, there's barely even a moment to take a breath and stop mm. and go like, this is what's happening. I, I had it. You now, must have had it in between records. Yeah, but it's now on this album... That, it all makes a bit more sense to me now. I know why you do certain things, and I know the effect that you know a certain show can have. Mm -hmm. or, you know, and it's easy to make sense of more. On the first one, you're just a rabbit in the headlights. 100%. You don't know what's going on. And I think, I mean, you could say I'm completely wrong, I don't mm. know, but I think you will have had that in an even more intense environment mm. because of the timeline of everything. In 2010, you're 16 and you go and audition mm. on The X Factor. Mm. And that, for most people that go and audition on a show like that, they're back at work the week after. Yeah. You know, that's the truth. It's, it's like true, the, yeah, the, no, the it's... figures, you know, not everyone can win or succeed from being on there. Mm. And then, you know, I remember, say, four years ago, my sister got the the 1D DVD for Christmas and mm -hmm. we watched it on Boxing Day. Did you? Yeah, really? yeah, yeah. Um, Which is brilliant. And I went back and watched it when I knew that we were going to have time together. And I, it just blew my mind, the time scale of everything, because yeah. in that DVD, which for anyone listening kind of follows the band around a particular tour, yeah. and I think it's only two or three years after you auditioned, yeah. you're already playing the O2, yeah. you know, and that's just in one country. 13, yeah, 13, 2013 would have been the arena tour. So how long... From 10 to 13. When yeah. you first auditioned, how long after that were you then recording your first album as a band? So X Factor finishes mid-December, I'd say, and this first single, What Makes You Beautiful, came out next September, if I'm not mistaken. So in that gap in there, pretty soon after, kind of like off to Sweden and... You know, right with make, make relationships with guys and stuff like that. Mm. And at the time, as you say, you're like a deer in the headlights. Mm. Especially us, we were 16 to 19 or so, and we were basically famous the minute your audition came out on TV, because you're being watched by. I think that season did quite well, and we were averaging about like 15 million people a weekend. So like your whole world is just like yeah. you've gone from. Like my dad always says. I went to my audition and never came back, you know, like in 
as his phrase because I did basically. I went to my audition, came home, packed my bag, and moved to London. And I live. And in, in that situation, you have to just go with the flow. Yeah, just keep saying yes. Yeah, see what happens. You know, yeah. go with it, because otherwise, the story is your. You're the kid that could have done something. Yeah, You're the exactly. kid that, like, oh, I almost did this. Mm. And that story's just not as interesting. No, it's, <laughs> you know, it's definitely it's like, not. It's that when you're, you're with mates or whatever and it's kind of, like, I nearly did this the other day. It's like, yeah, but imagine if you'd done it. You know? <laughs> it's so true. But you just got, yeah, you just have to go with it. And, and you, just, you don't say no, though, because mm. you're 16 years old. Mm. When, like, when you're, when you're given opportunities like that and you're on national TV and, the world is watching you don't care you're just having a lot of fun and I think that is what made people like One Direction in the first place was where people were like they're literally just five normal lads who can sing and look like they're having a bit of a laugh but I think that shone through I, think, yeah. I don't think there was ever a point where the thing that I don't like in music and this is just my personal thing I don't like it when someone takes themselves so seriously yeah. that they can't just have a smile have a laugh about themselves yeah. and understand that it's just music. Yeah. Like, and I love it. I'm saying that as someone that loves it. Exactly. But just, yeah. And I think that shone through from the band. I think something as well that I got from the, that particular tour DVD. My band has grown for this second album. Mm. And with the more people on stage, my performance has grown. Oh, like, yeah. And I'm more confident. Fact. You were on stage with five, four of your mm. friends. Mm. And your performance in that is like you've been doing it since you were... 12 or something. Exactly. But that, how does that happen? Because you weren't. You look, you look left and right. We had enough time to get to know each other. So it was literally like, being in the X Factor house, we were living in the same room. Okay, I didn't realise. All five so of us. Just... Two sets of bunk beds and a single bed. And we were in there with each other for 10 weeks. We scrapped like teenagers. You know, we, we did everything. It was like being at school, but we were just happened to go on national TV on Saturday night. It was, mm-hmm. it was a bit strange. But um, we got on really well. And and then the rest of it just comes, just comes easy. And then when you look left and right on stage, you know that you're with your mates and you're singing your songs. Yeah, and, and it's got- the same what what you're doing with your band. Like, I find it now. I was really nervous when I was doing my first promotion for this town, the single when it came out, because I was standing there and I would at the time I didn't have a band, and I was basically playing for three minutes off. Click. It's a brilliant video. It's wicked. How many takes did you do? Oh, I did like. Two, yeah, and they just kind of cut some of the one audio, two video for for the good of it. But um, yeah, literally, I was doing like Graham Norton and just standing there with my guitar. And I remember it was the first time that I'd ever performed without the boys. And I, they were like, yeah, "You can come out now, you know." And they're on the interview set, and then they bring you over. And I was like, "Oh, right, this is happening now." <laughs> yeah. Standing there with the acoustic guitar in my hand, going, "Here we go." Yeah, yeah. And then after a while, get a band, and then because we're all in playing the same stuff all the time, it bring, as you say, it brings out the yeah. best in your performance and makes the song better. You, it gives you a confidence, and not in a kind of like cartwheels on stage confidence, but yeah. you know that you've got your friends behind you. That's yeah. how I feel. It kind of feels... Look, every time that you get on stage to perform live, something could go wrong. That's what I, in my head. It's exactly. kind of, in fact, most nights something little does go wrong. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I heard about, and I don't know if this is true, but Jack White from The White Stripes... Yep. He would deliberately leave his plectrums on an amp on the other side of the stage and then get up to the mic and go, oh, I'm really sorry, I forgot my plectrums. And he did it on purpose so that the whole audience were like, oh, he's made a mistake, which I really like. That is brilliant. Isn't it? Yeah. There comes a moment, I've just had a realisation on this album where I realise I love touring and it's going to be something that I do forever or at least... I'm going to be on the move forever. And on the first album, I wasn't comfortable with that. I always used to think, no, I'll stop one day. But the truth is, it, it's an addictive lifestyle. You oh, know? 100%. And is there, is there... I mean, just even just walking through the door today, and you're talking about you've been here, you've been there, you've mm. got back from America. Is there something that you look forward to most when you know you're heading out? Especially now that you're playing with the band mm. live, is there an element to touring that you look forward to the most? It depends where you're touring. Sometimes I enjoy countries for what they are. For instance, like Asia, toured Asia, and or I mean Australasia, so kind of like Australia, Asia, New Zealand, and we 
we're on day 13 of that tour we've been on 11 planes and i remember thinking this is this is tiring and i and i kept it and then i look back and i'm thinking did the shows suffer like did did we look tired i don't know if we did like you start asking yourself questions um when you get to the states you have a tour bus like we just did three months in the states we have a tour bus we we get off the bus in the morning. We are the venue is basically our home. You go in, you shower, you eat your breakfast there, you eat your lunch there, you do your sound check there, you do the show, you get back on the bus, you go to the next place, and I kind of like that. Yeah. That's the best part for me. It feels like what touring should be. I think the appeal is you feel like I know this is such an overused analogy, but you feel like you're part of the circus and you exactly. roll into town and people come and you know watch the animals on stage. <laughs> yeah, like, it's and so then true. They get loaded back in their cages and they go, and I really. I love that. Or when you're like walking out of town in, in the daytime and sometimes you might see a poster of yourself at a bus yeah. stop and you're like, yeah. yeah it's cool. Ah. It's kind of like, yeah, it's still, I, I don't know about for you, but for yeah. me, I still find it hard to get my head around. Like, oh, this is happening, man. It, it really is. And, and in One Direction, we, we called one of our tours Where We Are Tour because we used to just stand there and just go, look where we are. Literally, like, and it's, it's true. And it's man, were you... Were you able to do that? Were you able to rem- prop each other up and go, like, if, if one of you was having a hard day or mm. you're going through a week of, like, I'm just, I want to be home or whatever, mm. you go, like, but look at where we are, man. No, but that's what, I, what, that's what it would be. Like, there was, we never lost that. Like, everyone gets homesick, but no one, you know, the appeal was that we were just normal lads just going around the world. And, and you also have to remember what, like, why we started in the first place. Why, like, why you wanted to do music, because... You, you went to concerts and you seen them enjoying themselves on stage or you bought a CD and loved it. Like, that's why we all got into music in the first place. Um, so, yeah, there obviously is times when you're tired and stuff, as we all know, but we have the best job in the world. So, as a band, you released five studio albums mm. and they were released in 2011, 12, 13, 14 and 15. Yeah. That's an album a year. Yeah. You've got to promote and tour the album. Yeah. That's just relentless on a whole, whole other level. Yeah. But at, at that point, it's all you will have, all you will have known. Mm. You know, is there? Do you ever look back on it and go, "Oh, if only if we'd just left a year between yeah. those two albums, do, you know, maybe I would have been able to come a bit more rejuvenated." Like, do, do, was there ever that notion? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Kind of like to, you have to have life experiences to write about stuff, and that's where I struggled toward the end. Um, but. I would have liked to have left gaps, but at the time it was just kind of, we were the circus rolling into the town and, and it felt good, you know, at, and at the same time we were kids and we were having a great time, you know, I like from six, from 16, 17 to 22, just, I mean, yeah, that's all you want, that's all you knew, that's all you wanted to do, but have a great time. Like even naturally just then I just said living the dream, but then yeah. were there, oh, I get it, I've got. Friends back home, and I come off tour, and there'll be little bits that, I, not that I want to moan about, but I'm just a bit like, yeah, I'm trying to say to them, like, it's not as easy maybe as it looks, and yeah, then yeah, I yeah, catch yeah. myself saying it, and I'm like, oh, but it probably is, it I is. don't know, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. it, and was there ever times where, I remember actually once, I came off a tour, and I had particularly struggled with it, and I remember my dad just saying, George, you're entitled to feel every emotion under the sun. You know, just because on paper it looks like this ideal life, Mm. it doesn't matter if, you know, one morning you wake up and you're finding it harder than others. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's really important to remember. Just because you're doing something so monumental, you're completely entitled to, to you know, to feel and to live. Yeah, exactly. Um, Um, Yeah, but it's like it's, you know... Doctors feel different to postmen, and like we just are normal people that do a abnormal job. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> and you know, society has made it, you know, us look like superior or whatever. But we still, we have. I know, and that's just we, culture. That's yeah, because yeah. people like pop music. Exactly. You know? Yeah, yeah. It is what it is, and it's going to be passed on for, from from hundreds of years or whatever. But. Yeah, we're. I guess we're allowed to feel tired and complain about it, but I know exactly what you mean because, you know, all of my mates do, you know, regular day, you know, day-to-day jobs, and and, you know, their struggles are completely different to my struggles, and then you feel bad because you know you might be in a, as you say, a mon- monumental position or whatever. 
it is what it is, isn't it? It's, just, it's a hard one to explain. You were just saying each week when you got on stage on the X Factor, mm. there was 15 million people watching you. Mm, right? Something like that. And there was also fan support unlike any I've seen from the word go. Mm. Right? Was there an element of you right at the beginning where you kind of, you're like, oh, I like this. You fuel the fire a bit, you know, it's like, oh, oh yeah, because it's so new to you. Exactly, yeah, you've no idea. You've got this uh, ide- like idea of what you think pop music looks like and I guess, I suppose, Bieber at the time would have been like a year or two ahead of us. Okay. So, we, you know, you kind of like, is this what he's got? You know, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, you're looking at it like that and then you're trying to like fuel the fire a touch. And then uh, it just kind of got bigger and bigger and bigger and yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of, when you look back at it, it's kind of a, it's a hard one to figure out because no one ever seen it coming. We were like, oh, I'll probably be big in the UK or if even, or, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then you find yourself at, you know, the, the Rose Bowl or I don't know. like It's Madison Square Garden. Yeah, though, things like, like this. It's, it's just like, I can't even... I can't even describe it. And I've had some of these moments on this run of my mm. own record where I've got to play places that we never got to play in the band. And Are you talking more like more like beautiful theatres? Yeah, yeah. I got like to play, I played Red Rocks, for instance. Oh, mate. I've never done I would yeah. love to do See, that. See, this is what I'm talking about. I've wanted to play Red Rocks. I've seen 1986 or seven, I think it was, uh, Under the uh, Red Blood Sky by U2 was a, an, a, an, a vinyl that came out and they had a documentary, a live gig on it. And I remember seeing that when I was like 10. And I was like, and I said this on stage when I was in, when I was on Red Rocks, I was like, I don't know where that is. I don't know what it is, but it looks unbelievable. looks a bit like the Flintstones. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to go there. Yeah. And, uh, and then I was, when I was standing on stage, I was like, we're here. I was like, I told my agent, I was like, when we go on tour, I want to play the Ryman in Nashville. Did you do that? Yeah, oh, it last year. And I, and I want to play Red Rocks if we can sell it out because there's a lot of people. But um, uh, yeah, I've got to play some really cool. And they're, they're the moments where you're like, yeah. yes. Yeah, man. Like, but literally, it's literally like, like a, I've made it moments. Yeah, so you're yeah. like fist pump yourself. But it's amazing how like this many years into your career, you can still be having I made it moments. Yeah. And also you can, it's moments like that as well, I feel that, it's like a payoff for all the hard work. It's like, mm. oh, and now I'm doing the dream gig. Yeah, you know? yeah. I think like people will have this thing where, you know, I guess it's because, I guess we all don't have to be as big as Ed or whatever. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? We're not. You know what I mean? I think we're, that's a failure if you're not as as, as big as Ed. Uh, I mean, Ed's the king. Yeah. And like, you know, we all go and watch his shows and he's the greatest guy. And I've known him since I was, you know, since the very start. Um, but uh, it's great to be like on the, at this on our level here and get to still you know have these moments where you get to pick you know enjoy a theater and yeah. you know, I've been personally I've been lucky enough to do the stadiums and it's and it's amazing. But we went straight from the X Factor to arenas effectively. Well, this was always my my thing of like my only thing about the X Factor was oh, exactly that. You miss out on the, I don't know, trying your hand at an open mic or going mm. supporting whoever and whatever. Mm-hmm. And now you're getting to do that. Yeah. You're, get, you're, you're getting to play the bars and the theatres and it's almost as if it's Benjamin Button. Like, yeah, a little I mean? bit, yeah. I think also what I feel is that there's this notion that every record has to beat the last. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And if it doesn't, then that's not successful. And I think that's really unhealthy because yeah. I, I guess as an artist, if you're happy with what you've written and recorded, yeah. that's that's the, the heart of it, you know? Yeah, exactly. If, like, if you're sitting there going, that verse is not good enough or that it's not as good as the verse on the last song on the last mm. album, you're, you're going to ruin it for yourself and you're not going to... I think this is why it takes some like people nearly like a couple of years to write albums these days because they're worried about that, that exact thing. But there's plenty of artists from back in the day who probably went two or three albums of crap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then one album that stood out (laughs) made their career. But they were able to do that, you know? I I can't remember who it was. I think I was talking to someone about R.E.M. recently. And I think it was their eighth studio album that had like a commercial hit on it. 
And in this, if you signed a record deal and you didn't have one on your first album, yeah, you'd be done. like, oh, sorry, mate, <laughs> it's not happening. Do you know what I mean? You're dropped. See you yeah. No, it is. It's a, it's a fickle, it's a fickle world. Well, I guess we have to move with the times as yeah. well. And and but you know, the way I can look at it is, and I kind of I've been kind of saying it to the label, like if I just say if I disappear for a year and go write an album and the label's wanting you to bring something out in three or four months' time. If they come back and the music is good, then the time that I w- went missing for it is non-existent. It doesn't matter. You know, like Adele. Adele will disappear for three years. She'll come back. Do you remember that Hello? advert that she on had the X before Factor. X Factor? Yeah. I was watching, right? I, like, <laughs> I know, and I remember the screen going black and I just... Hello, and I was like, "Who's that? <laughs> What's this?" And I remember texting someone saying, "Is Adele releasing music?" It was so exciting, and you're right; that had been. Three I'm not years. saying we're all Adele, but <laughs> yeah, the the ideology behind it is yeah. that if the music's good enough when you come back, then you know all that time is non-existent. Yeah. But not saying that we should just be taking our time on purpose. But if we are taking, but if we are away a few for a bit, things that I think are really important, and you've said that you need to live. And have life experiences to write, mm. and and you need to you need to love what you're releasing, you know. Exactly. And those two things married, it means that if it does take two years instead of one, mm. that's fine, man. Exactly. And love what you're releasing is a big one. Um, you have to be. If you're going to spend a year on it, you have to love it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, there's no point releasing stuff that you just kind of half-assed and well, also half like. It's, it's the, the recording it, and then you're the poor guy that has to sing them each night so if you don't like them that's what I think I'm screwed if I don't like this stuff because yeah. I have to get up and sing it each night yeah there's like uh, yeah, even at the t- end of the tour there I was saying it to the crowd I played my last show in West Palm Beach in Florida and I was saying to them I was like I've played I think it was like 82 shows or something this year and I said to them I was like I have not gotten bored of singing any of these songs at any point which is a good feeling it's amazing and if you can do that after 80 something shows that means you're happy with what you wrote and released um, so that's for me that's the agenda for the next time around to be able to do two albums on tour yeah, yeah. and enjoy it because it's for me when I'm writing songs I'm writing there I'm writing picturing myself standing in front of the mic yeah. wedges in front thousands of people in front of me and mate that feeling when you then have two albums to pick from it's great because you I can imagine. got a few in your back pocket of like, oh, maybe this one, you know. Changing set lists around. that's why I was saying we're going to rehearsal tomorrow. Mm. And there's one or two songs off the new album that we still haven't played yet. Ah. So we just need to write right, them right, up. Right, right, right. And we did this gig in uh, Berlin last week <laughs> that was um, great fun. And um, we, actually, <laughs> we actually played one of them. Um, for anyone listening, we had a bit of a funny gig in Berlin. Um, it rained a lot. This song is this nervousness, man. That's like every other song. You kind of start to rely on muscle memory, yeah. and it's you're still in the song. You mm. know the emotion of the song, mm. but you're not having to overthink about what your hands are doing when you're playing. Yeah, when you're playing, or and you rely on your muscle memory. Hundred percent. And new songs, it's like, oh <laughs> man, I'm not relaxed at all. <laughs> no, no, no. This is the interval section of today's podcast and I use this opportunity to kind of uh, let you know what I'm up to. Um, I guess the headlines are in George Ezra camp. Um, I recently released Hold My Girl, which is a song from my second album, Staying at Tamara's, and it is the third single from this album. It is one of my favourites to play live. Absolutely, I love it. Just before the album was released, actually, we recorded three videos that include the lyrics to the songs, and um, that that is by me singing karaoke to my own songs. And I got more and more drunk throughout each video. Uh, Hold My Girl came second, so I imagine I'm about three pints in at that point, four pints in. <laughs> that was a lot of fun to shoot. And also, since then, we have released an official video which I urge you go and check out. It's uh, without me being involved. I just think it's a brilliant video, regardless of my involvement. I really do think it's good. Um, so go and check that out. We've just finished um, 
a European tour and a UK tour. Um, that literally just finished last week. The last date was um, in London at Wembley. Dun, dun, dun. That was an amazing show. Um, really fun to be a part of all of that. So yeah, thank you to any of you that came down. I'm actually sat in front of my diary now, which is always a daunting thing. Um, so coming up is just a lot of kind of, there's a big promo run. I'm actually heading to Australia at some point before Christmas and a lot of kind of Christmassy TV bits and bobs. Um, I guess actually at this point, the thing that is, you know, the most exciting for me I don't know if I should say this, but it's absolutely this podcast. Yeah, no, fuck it, I should say that. This is the most exciting thing for me at the moment. I just love that we're finally here and the first episode is out. Now, I think this might be a good time to hear a word from our sponsors. If any of you are needing a bit more George Ezra in your life, everything that I'm up to is over at georgeezra.com. That's from news, live dates, releases, videos, photos, journal oh yeah i do a weekly journal that you can get in your inbox haha <laughs> you can get that from my website too so that's georgeezra.com um i feel like i'm rambling uh, let's jump back into it here we go this is Nile horan When you're on stage, when you're talking, what what band setup do you have? Is it? I have a, a all four and a violin, so drums, bass, a keys and guitar. I play acoustic and some electric for the whole set, and got violin because I had found that I had a lot of strings on on my record. And then there's the choice between for me having two or three, and you know it sounded naff or picking between violin and cello for me. Sometimes cello can sound a little bit too deep and but violin is I think fits perfectly and it's quite a sad instrument the cello a little bit. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. But the violin was great and it was a great addition and I had a lot of people said that to me actually that there's not many gigs of in our vein that have that addition and you know. Yeah. And as you said your band's getting bigger so you're obviously mm-hmm. thinking of that. Do you uh, at the moment for your second album do you want to stick to a similar setup, or production-wise? Have you got any ideas? Of you mentioned earlier how you know you've got to keep with the times a little bit. Mm. I feel that you know I'm aware of that. Yeah. It's like that. It's not like seeing what's fashionable necessarily, but it's 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 knowing what's going on around you and where you then fit in around that. Yeah, I think that, and I learned that big time from, particularly from Slow Hands. Such a tune. <laughs> Thanks, Such a tune, and. <laughs> um, and I found that particularly because it was a, it started as a jam that song, and an eighties jam based on early kind of Don Henley early eighties stuff, funky, sexy, cool riff, started like that and became this modernized version of that, and um, it was the reason I think because it was so so big, and um, was because it was so different than what was on, on the radio. And the same can be said for yourself, you know, if you would agree, um, that what myself and yourself are playing or the Eds or whatever, it's so different than the rest of the radio stuff that we stand out and that's what's great about it. And also, they're good songs. Yeah, man. <laughs> Thank you. I think that I find that sometimes I turn the radio on and I'm like... You've just so obviously ripped somebody off. I'm not going to name, like, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, not yeah, anyone yeah. in particular, but I'm like, how do you get away with doing that? Yeah. And then you're right, when a song like Slow Hands is released, it stands out. And not in a sore thumb way. Yeah, yeah. Not like, who's put that on? <laughs> <Who's that? laughs> <laughs> but in a refreshing yeah. Bit, yeah, yeah. And it's the one song actually on your album that has a standout, a bit more kind of electronic production, yeah. a bit. Um, yeah, and I think that's what I'll kind of aim for next time probably. Really? I think not so more, much more electricy, but kind of just that bit of dirt that bit of yeah That's dirt is the word it's yeah. got like a bit of and it, but the thing is in the kind of run of your album it doesn't it doesn't not fit in. That's what's so clever about yeah. it. It's got this a bit more of an electronic and as you said a bit more dirt to it. But yeah. it, it's it still fits in with the record which is 
a good thing because at the start when I when I wrote it, I was like that that won't fit, and then the more really? time I spent, yeah, I was kind of worried about that it was maybe a little bit too out there, but it was the best decision I ever made, and also that was at the time when I thought, should I just like should, what should it be? Should I go with my influences? I wanted to show off that part of my influence because I have like the slower songs, which are a bit more like Damien Rice influenced and then I have Slow Hands which is a bit more kind of this Eaglesy kind of Don Henley thing and I wanted to show off the two sides of it and I was worried about it for a while but once it was released I was I was I knew that it had fit in because people were coming up to me saying that they liked the slower ones and then they liked Slow Hands because it reminded them of the 80s or the late 70s which is exactly what you want to hear yeah. and it's def- songs like Slow Hands have definitely broadened my uh, fan base as well. Really, have especially you seen that happen? As, yeah, especially in America, I think um, the, mu- the music. In, my music is kind of, I guess, a bit more American. I, I would, I would say. Um, and I've watched, look out in the crowd, and I'm seeing couples in their mid forties and and fifties standing out with bears in their hands, and you know, giving all that to me. But uh, that, and that's exactly what you want, really, Absolutely. isn't it? You don't want to scare, you don't want to scare your own fans away. And but you also want to bring in new people, and that's yeah. like you can't ask for more. Also, I feel like there's a there's something to be said for your fans kind of growing up with you. Mm. You know, uh, occasionally there'll be acts that they're still making albums on their fifth album that sound like their first album, mm-hmm. and it's a bit like, but you're older now. You yeah. know, you've, you something should, must be different. Yeah, you should have grown up a little bit. Um, I think that's what Coldplay have done so well over the years for me. They've done. They're, they're such a good example of a band that... Moved to the times but kept originality. And I was saying to a friend recently, I think it's got to the point now where it's okay to admit you like Coldplay. There was a <laughs> yeah, point yeah, where, yeah. And, and I'm sure they would agree, where they were just the butt of jokes. I remember it being, yeah. you know, like Coldplay or Beige or whatever yeah, it would be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, can we just, can everyone just shut up and just agree that they've got tunes? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Exactly. The biggest tunes. And on every album, it's, it's, there's songs that we all know and love. That's, that's yeah. the aim. That's 100%. The... They've got at least two off every album they've released mm. where you're like, whoa, yeah. banger. And I guess that can't be said for everyone. No. So, um, and yeah, I felt I... that like, you know, this second album was only ever the second album I've released. Mm. And it's not that I was, I was happy with the album, but actually what I felt was it felt like the the industry had changed a bit. It felt like streaming was even more important now than it was on my first album. 100% it is. And that was a bit like, okay, I'm going to just have to get used to that, yeah. you know, idea. No, it is. A bit of, it was a bit of a shock to the system for me because One Direction's last album was 15, and then I released late, like, 17. So... Even in that gap, it's become the streaming world has become even bigger. Uh, radio still got its yeah. hand definitely, and uh, it's a big part, big part of what we do. But yeah, streaming is streaming is big now, definitely more so in the last few years. Yeah, but, uh, it, I kind of um, I like it. I always bought CDs, and now mm. I've kind of don't so much anymore. Yeah, but, and I'm actually probably listening to more music than when I was buying CDs, which yeah. is good yeah it's a good 100% and it's a great like way of like finding new stuff as well but it's always the people that are like ah streaming and Spotify and they're the very ones with Spotify accounts on their phone (laughs) do you know what I mean it's just like well that's a bit bullshit but also (laughs) well I I just have to admit as well you know their algorithms Mm. they're so good it's genius it's like this robot knows me better than I would know myself 100% what playlist you're going to go into and ah it's like genius I have it all the time now where because now it does this thing I don't know when this started but you put an album on and it just naturally starts playing music once the album finishes it just goes into to stuff that I like that's like yeah. that yeah and I'm like this is so spot on and even like the way they have you can if you want to go to it might line up a, a list of gigs that are in your area that are of similar yeah are of similar in similar vein to what you listen to so you might get a gig up in Islington Academy on Wednesday night that is of something that so I like something that you listen to. Amazing. So it's That's genius. really cool. And uh, 
I even find myself being influenced by stuff that I found on it. Yeah. You know, like I listen to like an acoustic playlist or something like that, and then be like, oof. Yeah. Like, probably a little bit late to it. Like, people like the Bar Brothers and, I don't know, like even some of the other stuff that I listen to, like St. Paul and the Broken Bones. There's one song by the Bar Brothers, and it's like, I always be a thing, never be a captain. It's it's so cool. It's I'll always be a something, never be a captain. I think it's brilliant. <laughs> it's so good. I I've, I'm li- listened to bits and pieces of them, and they're, and and that's kind of like, when you're trying to think of new stuff to do, you kind of make a an algorithm of all the different types of acoustic artists that you like, and I, I think. It's, Streaming services are great for that. Have you found that now that you're playing guitar, do you play guitar throughout the whole set now? Yeah, apart from slow hands, I get off the mic. Okay. Really? Yeah. Cool. Be a bit weird if I played that. What do you do? You feel that you can see an improvement in your playing? Oh yeah. Playing it's night? it's kind of you don't really notice because you're doing it yourself all the time. But then when you go to play something new or learn something new, you can pick it up a lot quicker. I found the exact same. And I remember playing the show in LA and um, a family that I work closely with, the Bonettas, uh, Julian Bonetta, who did all the 1D stuff and I, you know, I wrote Slow Hands with him and On The Loose um, and on this record. And I'm good friends with him and his family. And they're a big family in the, in the music industry around America. And his dad, uh, his dad called me after the show and, or I called him and I said, what did you think? And he said, I cannot wait for your next record. And I said, I said, so did you enjoy it? And he goes, no, I don't care about that. He said, your voice is get like your voice in the next record because you're doing so many shows and you're playing. He said, I just can't wait for your next record. It seems to be getting stronger. And I thought that was the best compliment I've had all year. Yeah. That he's excited about my next record because he's heard me sing live. And I'm like, that's exactly what the whole aim is. Yeah, Absolutely. And so I know we've kind of touched on the new album. I know that it's mm. like, it's, have you officially finished touring the first album? Yeah. Okay. I kind of did this thing where, came up with this idea at the, when the album came out that on in the two or three weeks in the lead of the running up to the album that we would go on tour. And like the first show I played was in the Olympia in Dublin. And the album was still three weeks away from coming out. So I basically played to 2,000 people an album that they'd never heard before and I called it the Flickr Sessions brilliant <laughs> so I could like just and it was the first time that I've heard a crowd of mine be silent where I was like because <laughs> yeah. they had nothing to sing along to or anything but they were just like still by the second chorus they were getting into it and and I thought it was a really cool, cool thing to do then posting videos of yeah. the night which meant the next game, people would have already picked bits up. Exactly. Two nights later, I played Shepherd's Bush, which is amazing because I've gone to so many gigs there too. And, uh, yeah, I went on stage and they were singing some of the songs. And But then that made it so much better then because when the album came out, they knew some, some of them knew it because the videos on YouTube. Yeah, and it's really clever. It was, it was interesting to see what songs did better than others. And then when we went on tour, then the, the proper tour, and everyone knew. And it was good because I could go to Australia, do breakfast TV or do uh, did the voice in Australia and then the next day I'd go and do my gig at the Holden like I think you just did it I think um, and it was a good way of killing kind of like killing yeah. two birds with one stone that's so clever because yeah. it's kind of like you can put your hands up and be like I didn't release it just people videoed it and yeah exactly yeah. shares it that's really cool no it was, re- it was a really cool idea and did that for about six weeks and Kind of hit, hit like the, the Dublin, my home gig, did London, did Stockholm, did Tokyo, Sydney, uh, Rio, um, LA, New York, and then like some major cities around New- around America. But it was a really, really good idea. I can't say I came up with it, but <laughs> <laughs> I'll cut that out. Yeah, it's my <laughs> idea. It's my idea. And uh, yeah, and then when, when we went on tour, then everyone knew it inside out, and it was, it was. Really cool, and people it, ask me, "Would I do it again?" I would, yeah. But it also allows you to—they're like posh rehearsals as well, because exactly. as a band, you get to play it without it being quite as big scale as it will one day be. 
Exactly, and maybe not sometimes as polished because we yeah. didn't like we obviously rehearsed it, but it, it's kind of like being a footballer. Like you can do as much training as you want, but once you get out on the pitch or in a boxing ring or whatever, you can't like nothing can face you or nothing can get you ready enough for that. It's a it's a different experience altogether. I think yeah. playing live was there. I know I'm really interested in this bit before the first solo album Mm. were you thinking I know you've touched on which artists you wanted to show of your influences Mm. were you thinking how do I get my personality across outside of the band Mm. you know how do I because so much of personality is when you bounce off other people and things like that Mm. was there a was there I thought it was a really amazing thing you did but I'm fairly sure the first thing you released was a video of you. Is it in the Capitol building? Yeah. Just Shooting white t-shirt, t-shirt, acoustic guitar, yeah. camera going round. Yeah. And I thought that was a really a really lovely way to kind of just ease back into it. Of like, it's me, it's the acoustic guitar. Yeah. I, I think when, when I released the music, the feeling I got from everyone was that no one was shocked of what type of song it was. I think people always kind of see me as the little Irish fellow with the acoustic guitar. Um, which I'll definitely take all day long because that's all I grew up on. Um, and people weren't shocked. People weren't expecting me to release a full-on pop hit. Or a, I just realised that was exactly it because I watched it the day it came out and I remember thinking, like, oh, wicked. Like, that's so obviously what he should be doing. Mm. Like, that he looks so natural and... Uh, you're right. I just... If you'd come out with some, like, electronic dance tune by yourself, I, maybe <laughs> I would have been like, oh, I don't know. No, I, I, I don't listen to that stuff, so I could, like... You know, I could have. I remember going around with my one of the guys from the label, and we were going around to like different, you know, Apple Music in Asia, and blah, blah, and we were having meetings and playing songs. And he kept saying, that, my international guy, he kept saying, you know, it would have been very easy for Niall to to go along that line and stick to that path and and make a full on pop record and kind of fake it. But I wasn't interested in that. I would have happily just called it a day if that's what people were looking for me. You know, I I wanted I wanted to make an album that I cared about, that represented me and my influences, that I wanted to play every night and not half-ass it, and uh, and I also wanted to trust my songwriting. Like I knew that I could write to a certain standard. Do you feel like your writing's improving as well? Oh yeah, like. You know, it's like you go on runs of writing two or three in a row where you're like, ooh, that was good. And then <laughs> yeah. and then the, for the next five, they're just like, eh. Yeah, not so sure. We'll be that. releasing that. And then <laughs> yeah. sometimes fans ask you, like, so when are you going to release uh, songs that didn't make the album? I, basically, there's a reason why they're not on the album. <laughs> they are horrific. Yeah. And every songwriter, Ed will tell you, Ed write like 200 songs a year. And, you know, 13 make the album. Yeah. And the rest of them are off it for a reason. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's 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 a... Tough one, but um, yeah, yeah, I wanted it. I wanted to trust my abilities and just kind of wanted to have fun with it too. Mm. You know, I wanted to introduce my fans that you know introduce the fans to newer types of music, as I said at the start, and and different types of music and stuff that they you know probably laugh at their parents that for listen for listening to. Um, and yeah, just kind of. You should have, have you, fun while I'm doing it. It would be amazing if you put together a playlist on Spotify, like a public one, yeah. of inspirations for the album and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, I kind of do like a playlist of what what I'm listening to at the nice. minute. But yeah, but I, I'm on inspirational stuff. That's a good idea. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I st- you know, people always ask me what are you, what are you listening to, and I think it's pretty obvious. Like in, in like your your album. Uh, it's incredible. Oh, thank you. And then, <laughs> but then after that, I'm kind of still listening to the same same stuff I did when I was younger. Like, because you're always kind of looking for inspiration to write songs, and My that's where I go blank. to. When yeah. someone says to me, "What are you listening to?" I'm like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> but I, like things come into my head. Like I follow Elton John on Instagram. And he's on his tour at the minute, so I've just found myself listening to Yellow Brick Road about ninety billion times this week. And yeah, isn't it mad that that was a pop album? Like the because it sounds so out there to me when I, I hear that album, and that's what he says himself. You know, he says that himself that he wanted. You know, he 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 thought he wasn't writing pop songs, but he was. Yeah, yeah, and that album especially. That was a that's a pop record. I love that Benny and the Jets and songs like that on it. Um, looking forward to seeing that show by the way. And by the way, I loved his interview with you. 
you enjoy it yeah because I think that's the best thing about what this this podcast does is that you like we get interviewed by journalists all the time Uh and we don't get to talk on a level like this but when you get like artist to artist and actually just kind of sit and have a frank conversation that's when you get the best out of people I think think. so as well because it's just I could sit and talk about music for hours yeah me too yeah and I think sometimes my friends from home that would bore them like, do you yeah, know what I mean? yeah. so it's like good it's like a new, a new outlet for me to talk about I tell you what we might have to bring this microphone to the pub but could, there could be six or seven pints and there's two guitars over there yeah. the six piano. or seven episodes yeah. this is episode number three we're in the pub yeah <laughs> do you ever um, do you ever play 1D songs on Nile shows yeah I play um, the song we wrote on album Adam 4 yeah a lot of songs, a lot of albums. Um, called Fool's Gold. Uh, I just play that on my own. The band leaves. I play that acoustically, and then because it's one of those ones that the crowd can sing along to, and nice. I let them sing a chorus at the end, which is really cool. Hearing ten thousand people sing back, and I just st- stop playing as well, and they just finish it off. <sighs> Love that. Love those moments. You can't put a price you can't, on that. You can't. And people are like you know, you can genuinely tell when someone's having fun. Like I've been to gigs before where. You look up and you're like, he's 200 shows deep. He doesn't care. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And fair enough, 200 shows deep. You're doing the same thing every day. Yeah, yeah. But there's nothing can take away from that, how that feels. Yeah. Literally, like a, you get goosebumps every time it happens. And then I also play Drag Me Down. Okay, nice. Um, I've turned that into kind of like a police version. Starts with like a, pol- like a police kind of riff. Cool. I'm really uh, happy to hear you did that. I wasn't sure if you did 1D songs on tour. I, think I mean, I wouldn't, be, do. I wouldn't be doing my solo if it, was, if it wasn't for 1D, so yeah. you have to... And the fans want to hear it too. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. So uh, you have to kind of touch on it, obviously. What was the 1D song? I'm rubbish with names, but it was like... Something fire... I got fire for her. No? I'll find it at the end. I love it. So next year I'm playing um, the O2 and venues of that song. Congrats. Thank you. Man. I was delighted for you when I seen that. Yeah, thank you. Do you prefer playing the venues you're playing now mm. or the size you were with 1D? Or do both of them have? Because if I'm honest, I'm a bit yeah. nervous as if a room that big will take away some of the kind of personal element of yeah, the yeah, yeah. I don't know yeah. I d- that's what I'm going to fight the most to try and achieve yeah I think your personality will make it personal okay, yeah I think the arenas don't like the arenas feel small when you make it when you make it feel small I think I've pl- played for the last three months these outdoor amphitheatres we call them sheds obviously uh, <laughs> in, in America and we obviously I wish they were everywhere but we don't have the weather for them over here because be flooded every night of the week. But um, imagine that up in Manchester, yeah. pissing rain in November. Um, but uh, these amphitheaters—they're anything from the seats go about six or seven thousand, and then there's a lawn behind them that just goes up and up and up, and the, hat, the seats are covered and the lawn's not. And it's basically—it can be from seven thousand to twenty thousand if you want. People be sandwiched in, and I feel like it really suits the like our kind of music where like I remember going to watch John Mayer at one of them in 2013 or something like that on that Born and Raised uh, album he did and it really suited that kind of rootsy you know big band up on stage playing um, standing still type artist because that's what we are Um, and really made it more personal and more about the gig but still getting the same amount of people in as as an arena um, as I said earlier, I've been lucky enough to do, to do both, uh, and they give they give two different, two completely different things equally. And you were saying how like you, when you're writing, you write with performing in mind. Yeah. Does that mean you kind of in your head while you're singing, you're kind of like, okay, cool, that would be cool to have a backing vocal there, or that mm. would be, you know, are you thinking about particular instruments as you go? Yeah, that's like I knew three or four songs into the writing the album that I was going to ha- have a vi- like a strings player of some sort. Nice. You just know, like you just know, like this, this song would be naked without the strings. And if they're on track, it sounds terrific. And you want to play as live as you can. They're so. like a synth string. <laughs> <laughs> they sound horrendous. 
the reason I basically picked up the acoustic guitar was probably because of Damien Rice and, and O, the album O basically changed my life, I think, forever. And, like, going to gigs like that where you just see the, the, the player with his eyes closed singing a song, you know, and then when you sit to go and write a song, you find yourself with your eyes closed and thinking, Jesus, I'd love to be looking at me singing that song because you can see the passion on my face. Because mm. as you said, as we said, you go to gigs sometimes and you can tell no one gives a crap or that person doesn't care. I th- the thing that I'm like, I miss as a solo act is that there's not the same person by my side each night to kind of, not each night, at each step of the way, there's not the same person to celebrate with. So I write with someone that doesn't tour with me. I produce with someone that doesn't tour with exactly. me. And, then tour, and I remember meeting you and the guys in the band at the BBC, BBC Music yeah, Awards. Yeah. And like, I, I remember being like, they just seem like they're enjoying it, yeah. right? And that won't come as a shock to you because you'll be like, yeah, because well, I fucking was. What's the <laughs> exactly. But I think it, because it was so big, I think there was something in my head where I was like, do they get time to, yeah, yeah, to, yeah. to enjoy it? You know, was there anyone in particular in the band that you would turn to and be like, this is amazing? Yeah, I would say, I would say like personality-wise, I'd say me and Louis were, cl- were closer. Um, so you'd be like, geez, this is all right, isn't it? Like you kind of, you, you get on with different people for different reasons. Yeah, it's like course. family, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'd say Louis, but... And do you get to, I don't, this, do you see the guys anymore? I know you're all extremely yeah. busy in your own ways. That's I mean, the thing, yeah. Wherever, everyone's busy. Um, I'll see Louis this week, now that I'm here. Nice! Yeah, yeah, big time. Um, he lives not too far away from me in LA as well, so when, when we're over there, he's, his kid's over there as well, so that's cool. Uh, I believe Harry is over there as well, so when I go there in two weeks, I'm going to be uh, hanging out over there for a bit. Um, so I'll get to see all the boys that are in LA. So And uh, Liam's all over the place. Yeah, he doesn't stop. Yeah, he, just, he hasn't stopped, and, and, um, but he likes it that way. Yeah. He likes it, the full, going full mass. But... Um, just as you're saying that, like, about seeing us at the BBC Music Awards, you, I don't think at the time we knew what was going on. Mm. Like, we were very much in, like, uh, our own bubble. We had our touring crew that we toured with the same people for five years. We had, you know, our security people. We had, you know, A-team, if you like. And we you just seen the same people every day and you didn't think about how big it was. You know, you never really... I never... I always used to think to myself, and I always thought this, like, I wonder what this looks like from the outside. Because we were just, like, going along having a laugh. Did we look like idiots? Did we look like we were hating it? Did we... You know, you start... Again, you start asking yourself so many questions, but we were definitely having a good time and enjoying every bit of it. Do you ever sit back and put a 1D album on or, mm. you know, look back over videos or anything. Do you ever sit back and ha- give yourself the opportunity to go, like, to to reminisce? Yeah, I remember uh, not too long ago, actually, was at home in a house in LA and we were sitting in the sitting room and uh, someone was over. I can't remember who it was, but wanted to watch the... Or we went past it or something on the iTunes documentary, you know, Music Docs or whatever... And it was us playing, we'd released a show of um, us playing the San Siro in Milan. And that, I got embarrassed after 10 minutes and had to turn it off. Really? Yeah, I just can't, I don't know, I just get looking at myself, just big, yeah. blonde, big blonde fringe. <laughs> Look like Jedward or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, kind of turned it off with embarrassment. But that was like cool to be able to like say that that stuff is there forever. Oh, you know, like a DVD of us playing one of the most famous stadiums. And as a football fan, that was the best part of the stadium yeah. tour for me. The going around all I, the dressing rooms. The thing I always got the impression of was, and I mean this in a really positive way, but when I used to see you guys as a band doing your thing, I always used to think that you looked like the person that couldn't believe his luck the most. Exactly. Like, of everyone in the band, it always looked like you had a look on your face and like, this is sick. <laughs> it is, though. Well, it is. It's, exact, it's exactly what you wanted to do. When you were a kid, you know. But that's the other thing in the DVD. You're the one that kind of wears his heart on his sleeve and just goes, I love boy bands, I love pop music, and I'm doing yeah. it now. I love everything. Love, I listen to most stuff, to be fair. Um, and, yeah, and just, now, now we're here. Like, it's it's pretty cool. And now I get to, no, I won't say experiment, but, like, 
you know, write songs from, from my roots and what I listen to generally and it's, all of that has gotten me to this point now to where I'm just about to, well, start to write my second album, mm. which is a exciting prospect. Listen, man, thank you for today. I'm not going to take up any more legend. of your time. You're an absolute legend. Thanks for having me. Not at all. Big fan. <laughs> Don't go changing. <laughs> Don't go changing. <laughs> And just like that, it's the end of the episode. I know I keep saying it, but here we are. It's the first episode of season two. It's just amazing. Yeah. Thank you for being here. If you enjoyed it, go and check out previous episodes. Um, Tell a friend to check it out. And if you really enjoyed it, it would mean the world if you could give it a five-star rating on the podcast app or wherever you listen to it. Any review with five stars helps because it means more people will see the podcast and it will come up on more people's feed, which can only be a good thing. Um, Of course, a huge thank you to Niall Horan. Uh, Niall, thank you for having me over. You're a gentleman. Thank you very much. Um, And, of course, the team that helped put this together. There is Josh Sanger and the Closer Artist team that help oversee everything come together. There is Warren Borg, who helps edit the podcast. Thank you very much, Warren. And uh, Oshin Griffin, thank you very much Oshin, who does all of the amazing graphics that you see on my Instagram and Facebook and all of that jazz. So thank you to those guys for putting this together. And um, yeah, thank you. Here we go. Oh yeah, oh yeah, thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. And see you next week. Bye-bye.